0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through this section of Matthew's Gospel, and we'll begin reading in verse 33. And we'll speak for a few minutes on this subject this morning the vineyard and the stone, Matthew chapter 21. We'll begin reading in verse 33. <clears throat> and this is what the word of God says. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it. And dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants, and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the second in a trilogy of judgment parables directed to the chief priests and the elders who had demanded that Jesus explain to them by what authority he conducted his ministry, specifically by what authority he cleansed the temple and by what authority he taught the gospel of the kingdom in the temple. Now, the background for this parable is Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, where Israel is likened to a God-planted vineyard which fails to produce fruit, and God promises to break it down and to make it a waste. And through this passage, the prophet Isaiah makes it clear that although God had provided everything necessary for Israel to obey Him and produce spiritual fruit, Israel had only produced bad fruit, going its own way time and time again. Therefore, through the prophet Isaiah, God prophesies to his people that he will bring judgment. Jesus' parable in this passage provides the sequel to Isaiah's Song of the Vineyard. This was the same vineyard and the same landowner that Isaiah prophesied about. This was the same issue in Isaiah's day that was prevalent in Jesus's day. And as will be evident, the focus of the parable is on the tenants who rented out the vineyard. And in this parable, Jesus pointedly confronts and exposes the spiritual barrenness of the religious leaders, and he pronounces judgment on them. So would you notice with me, first of all, in verses 33 to 39, the parable taught and in this parable, there are three scenes. So scene number one is God's provision found in verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, in the culture of Jesus's day, it was not unusual for a wealthy man to buy a piece of land and to develop it for a vineyard. He would first put a fence of stone or a hedge of briars around the vineyard to protect it from wild animals and thieves. Then he would make a wine press. Sometimes he would have to cut that out of the bedrock. And in the wide, shallow upper basin, the grapes would all be squeezed and the juice would run down through a trough into a lower basin. And there, all of the grape juice would be poured into wineskins or clay jars for storage. Often, the owner would also build a tower in the vineyard, which would be used as a lookout post for marauders, as a shelter for the workers, and as a storage place for the seed and the implements needed to care for the vineyard. Now, you'll notice in verse 33 that the vineyard in Jesus' parable was well equipped all of the details that are given emphasize the master's great care and thoughtful provision of this vineyard and you'll also notice in verse 33 that once all of the preparations for the vineyard were in order the master leased the vineyard to tenants whom the master thought would be trustworthy and faithful caretakers and as a part of this agreement The tenants would agree to pay a certain percentage of the produce or the proceeds to the master for rent. And then they would keep all of the remainder of the profits as payment for all of their service in caring for this vineyard. And so Jesus says in verse 33 that the master was satisfied with this arrangement with these tenants. And so he left and he went into another country. Now, friends, the meaning of the various elements of the parable are clear and simple to discern. The vineyard is Israel. The tenants are the religious leaders of Israel. The master is God. The fruit that will be produced from the vineyard is the fruit of repentance and righteousness and obedience to God and his kingdom. And the servants whom the master sends to collect his rent, are the prophets of the Old Testament. And the Son is Jesus Christ. Now, in this well-provisioned vineyard, we see a picture of God's love for his people Israel. And the rest of the parable describes how Israel responded to God's love. God loved Israel so much that He chose her out from all of the nations to bless the nations. God loved Israel so much He cared for her. He nurtured her. He rescued her from slavery in Egypt. God gave Israel His love. He gave Israel His law. He gave Israel a rich land and He gave Israel a place to worship. God loved Israel so much he provided judges for her. He provided kings. He provided prophets, all of which were to lead and protect his chosen people. And the psalmist describes in great detail this love and this care and this provision of God for his people. And in Psalm 80 verses 8 to 10, this is how the psalmist describes God's provision to his people. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. And through this first scene in the parable, Jesus was reminding the religious leaders of his day and the people of his day that Israel was the privileged possession of God and God richly loved her and provided for her now we move on to scene number two in verses 34 to 36 and we move from God's provision to God's pity and this is what Jesus says and when the season for fruit drew near he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit and the tenants took his servants and he beat one And killed another and stoned another. Again he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. And Jesus is teaching us that when the master leased the vineyard. The tenants were expected to pay a fixed amount of the proceeds to him. And even though newly established vineyards would produce minimal amounts of fruit the first four years. It was important For the landowners to collect this rent and establish their rights as owners of the vineyard. For Jewish law allowed tenants to establish a claim of ownership on land if it was undisputed for three years or more. So as a result, Jesus says in verse 34, you'll see, When the season for fruit drew near, the master sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. But instead of paying the agreed upon rent, in verse 35, Jesus says the tenants took the master's servants, they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned another. Now you need to understand at this point in the parable that the tenant's refusal to pay the master was an attempt on their part to deny the master's claim of ownership to the vineyard. They were saying by killing the master's servant, This vineyard does not belong to you. It is our vineyard. They wanted to keep the vineyard for themselves. And because the master went into another country, they hoped that the master would forfeit his ownership rights. But notice what the text says in verse 36. Instead of giving up his right of ownership, Jesus says that the master in his pity sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. In his account, Mark says that the first three servants came separately, one after another, and that the tenants beat the first servant, sending him away bloody, bloody, bruised, and empty-handed, The second servant, they struck on the head and treated him shamefully, and the third servant, they killed. And then Mark says in his account that the master sent many others and some they beat and some they killed. So the three servants, as well as the second group of larger servants, all represent the early prophets of the Old Testament. And the late prophets of the Old Testament and the tenants treatment of the servants represents how Israel treated the prophets of God. In the book of Second Chronicles, the writer accounts the decline and the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he pictures this reality that Jesus is portraying in the parable. And this is a description, friends, of how Israel treated God's servants. And in Second Chronicles, chapter 36, verses 15 and 16, the Bible says the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Listen, but they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the lord rose against his people listen and there was no remedy for the people that's how israel treated the prophets of god god out of compassion for his people persistently sent his prophets to them, to warn them and to help them and to lead them. And Israel despised the pity of God. They wanted nothing of his compassion. At the conclusion of Jesus's encounter with these religious leaders, at the end of this day, when he is teaching this parable, he takes this parable and he applies the treatment of Israel to the Old Testament prophets with the religious leaders, and he tells them that they are guilty just like Israel was. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 23, verses 29 to 31. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. And did you hear what Jesus said to them? You're thinking to yourselves, religious leaders, that if you lived in the days of the Old Testament prophets, you would have listened to them. You would have heard them. You would have obeyed them. You would have followed them. You never would have treated them like Israel did. And then Jesus looks them directly in the eyes and says, you are just as guilty as your forefathers. God has sent you the prophet in John the Baptist. And you've done the very same thing to him that Israel did to the Old Testament prophets. The religious leaders were taking the fruit of God's kingdom and they were using it for their own ends in the form of power and status. And when God, through his prophets, began demand, to demand of them the produce of the vineyard, they refused. They wanted to keep it all for themselves themselves. They had their own selfish aims, their own selfish ambitions in mind, and they were using the means of God's vineyard, of God's people, for gaining power and prestige for themselves. In their minds, don't miss this, God's vineyard had become their vineyard. It belonged to them. And in verses 37 to 39, we see the third and final scene of the parable, God's vineyard patience and Jesus says finally he sent his son to them saying they will respect my son but when the tenants saw the son they said to themselves this is the heir come let us kill him and have his inheritance and they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him Mark says in Mark chapter 12 and verse 6 that this son was a beloved son of the owner and the son according to Jesus represents himself that he is the heir and as the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2 he is the heir of all things and so instead of respecting this son Jesus says in verse 38 that when the tenants saw the son they said to themselves this is the heir come let us kill him and let us gain his inheritance and so in verse 39 they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed the son it's important to note that they took him out of the vineyard and killed him because if they had killed him in the vineyard the land would have been regarded as unclean and they wouldn't have been able to sell any of the fruit from the land and that's why the writer of hebrews confirms the treatment of jesus in hebrews chapter 12 verses 12 to 13 by saying that jesus was rejected and he was taken outside the camp to be crucified and that's what jesus is showing these religious leaders that they will do to him the tenants think that they'll gain the inheritance of the father through their wicked actions and this is the height of their pride and their folly and their greed instead of caring for god's vineyard israel's re- leadership had rejected god they had rejected his prophets and they had rejected his son the promised messiah these religious leaders loved themselves more than they loved god and his people their hearts were filled with greed they wanted the vineyard and everything that came with the vineyard they craved power they craved control they craved authority in god's kingdom and they wanted it so badly they were willing to kill god's very son and yet don't miss this friends in spite of all of their evil actions, in spite of their wickedness, in spite of their rejection, God, in an act of utter pity and compassion, sent His Son to them to save His people. One commentator described the parable this way. The point of Jesus' story Is not the way a businessman would act to protect his investment. It is the way a compassionate and loving God acts to save sinners. That's the point of the parable. This is how God acts to save his people. So we not only see the parable taught. Secondly, we see the parable examined in verses 40 and 41. And notice what happens. Jesus brings the parable to a conclusion, and he says, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Now notice what happens. In verse 40, after the conclusion of the parable, Jesus asks the religious leaders a question. Do you see the question he asks? What will the owner of the vineyard do to these tenants based on their actions when he comes? Then notice what happens in verse 41. You cannot make this up. The religious leaders answer Jesus' question. And notice what they say to him. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and he will let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. Do you see what happened, friends? Jesus asks a question of the religious leaders and his question causes them to examine the parable that he just told them. And in their examination, they come to a proper conclusion. They say to Jesus, well, when the owner comes, he he is going to severely punish all of these wicked tenants and he's going to take his vineyard and he's going to give it to somebody else. He's gonna give it to faithful tenants. And notice what's taking place here. The religious leaders were so caught up in Jesus' story, they didn't even realize in their answer they just condemned themselves with God's judgment. They had no clue, they fell right into the trap. Do you know what's most astonishing about this examination of the parable? It's how Luke describes it. In Luke chapter 20 and verse 16. For Luke says that after the Pharisees and the religious leaders answered Jesus' question, saying that they're going to be punished and the vineyard's going to be given to someone else, the crowd that was gathered in the temple that day that heard Jesus' parable, they all cried out, surely not surely not Israel will be taken away judgment we not only see the parable taught and the parable examined third in verses 42 to 44 we see the parable applied notice what happens Jesus said to them have you never read in the scriptures Luke says in his account in Luke chapter 20 and verse 17 that when Jesus said all of these words to the religious leaders, he looked directly at them. Here's the translation He pointedly and directly applied this parable to the religious leaders and the people of his day. And notice what happens in this application. In verse 42, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. This is the same psalm from which the crowds uttered praise to Jesus when He rode in in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And now Jesus takes this same psalm that was on the lips of the people, singing and shouting His praises, and He applies it with this parable to the religious leaders. And on the surface, when you read this quote from Psalm 118 concerning the stone, it seems out of place, doesn't it? What in the world does this stone have to do with the vineyard that he was just talking about? Ah, but on closer examination, Jesus changes metaphors and he moves from the metaphor of the vineyard to the metaphor of the stone, to reinforce the point of the parable. You remember, every parable has a point. And Jesus quotes Psalm 118 to reinforce what he's trying to teach with this parable. Jesus, in his crucifixion, is the stone that the builders rejected. But in an astonishing display of power and glory, God will take this stone that the builders rejected and he will turn it into the cornerstone. Well, what is the cornerstone? The cornerstone is the most basic and essential part of the building. It's the stone upon which everything else in the building aligns. And if the cornerstone is imperfectly cut, or if the cornerstone is misplaced, the stability of the rest of the building will be affected. That's why some builders rejected cornerstones if they weren't properly cut and placed. Now, you see, with the language that Jesus is using, he is clearly referring to his crucifixion and his resurrection and he's teaching them, not only through the parable, but through this picture of the stone in Psalm 118, that the religious leaders and the people of his day considered him to be an unworthy, a miscut, a misplaced stone. And they rejected him. And they took him outside of the city. And they crucified him on a cross. But God... The owner of the vineyard will come in an amazing display of power and glory. He will resurrect his son, this stone from the grave, and he will make him the cornerstone upon which all of these religious leaders and all the people of Jesus' day. And I would say to you this morning, even people in our day will stumble over Jesus Christ. Because they will be just like the religious leaders and say he's a misplaced stone. He is an uncut stone. Do you know what happens after Jesus' resurrection? Peter is preaching after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descends. And in his sermon, Peter refers to this very text. And this is what he says in Acts chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. "...let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, but that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Listen, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven." given among men by which we must be saved. Do you hear that, friends? What the psalmist talked about in Psalm 118, what the crowds chanted about as Jesus entered Jerusalem, Jesus now refers to at the end of this parable, and Peter proclaims it, that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, and that if you reject Him, you will stumble all over Him and you will be crushed by Him because there is no other name given under heaven by which you can go to God other than the name of Jesus Christ. He is not just the best way, friends. He is the only way to God. And you either go by Him, the cornerstone, or you are crushed by the cornerstone. And that's what Peter proclaimed the Apostle Paul when he was writing to the church at Ephesus and he was describing to them how God formed his church after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He refers to this same text and he says in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 to 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And in the overall all context of the book of Ephesians, Paul has just been describing how God took a people who were dead in their trespasses and sins... Who were alienated from life with God, who followed the devil, who followed the world, who followed and lived for the passions and the desires of their flesh. And he made them alive in Jesus Christ by grace. We have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And he says, because we've been saved like that, we're no longer strangers, we're no longer aliens, we're no longer separated from God, we've been grafted, if you will, into the vineyard. And now we are fellow saints with one another. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a part of the family of God and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone by which all of us find our alignment and our unity. And this is what Jesus is teaching these religious leaders. He connected this parable to Psalm 118 to reinforce, reinforce his point that the re- rejected son of the parable is the rejected stone of Psalm 118. And both the son and the stone refer to him. And this is a clear explanation that Jesus is God he is the only savior of the world now notice what he does in verse 43 he once again pointedly addresses the religious leaders do you see it therefore I tell you therefore religious leaders therefore the people of Israel because you have rejected me You will stumble over me. You will be crushed by me. And I will give my vineyard to someone else. And that's what he tells him in verse 43. The kingdom of God is going to be taken away from unbelieving Israel and her ungodly leaders. And it's going to be given to believing Gentiles who will be faithful to him. These religious leaders in unbelieving Israel, they were barren. And they were blind and they refused to turn in repentance from their sin and believe in Jesus Christ and produce spiritual fruit. They were barren and blind. Listen, Jesus says to them, you're going to remain that way. You will remain in your barrenness and your blindness because you've rejected me and you will be crushed. By me. Paul told the Romans. That one day Israel would return to God. And bear the fruit of his kingdom. And he says in Romans chapter 11 and verse 2. That God's not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then he goes on in that same chapter. In verses 25 and 26. And he says. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Even though Israel will return to her God. God says through Jesus, God says through Paul, that he will graft other people into the vineyard. He will graft Gentiles into the vineyard. He will graft people like you and me into the vineyard. And in Romans chapter nine, verses twenty five to twenty six, he says this as indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people and her who was not my beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people there, they will be called the sons of the living God. And that's what Jesus is prophesying in this parable. The Jews who rejected They're left out. The Gentiles who reject, they're left out. God will have a nation for himself. God will have a people for himself. And this nation and these people will bear spiritual fruit for his kingdom. Do you see, friends, this parable is all about the glory of God and his work of salvation and saving grace through his son and God will have a remnant for himself that's why Peter says in First Peter chapter 2, verses 6-10, through 10, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what Jesus is teaching through this parable. A people Who have received the grace and the mercy of God. And instead of rejecting their son. They have received his son. They believed on his son. They've been grafted into the kingdom of God. They've been saved by his son. They are now be-mercied and be-graced by the living God. They were not a people. Now they are God's very own precious possession. They belong to him. And friends, if you know Christ as your Savior, this is who he is describing. He is describing you. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you are being left out of this picture. You must either receive the stone or be crushed by the stone. There are only two options. Now notice what he does in verse 44. And Jesus refers to Isaiah 8:14 and to Daniel chapter 2. And he promises sanctuary to those who receive him. And he gives a warning of judgment for those who reject him. That's why one commentator summarized all of Jesus' application to this parable this way. This stone either saves or it crushes. The stone either stays in place as the cornerstone upon which you build your fruitful life, or it is a stone that is pushed out of place and becomes a stumbling stone and it rolls over you and it crushes you to dust. That's it. So we could apply the parable personally to ourselves this morning and just ask this simple question Are you building your life on the cornerstone of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to him in repentance and faith and belief and trust for the forgiveness of your sins and for the salvation of your soul and for your reconciliation to the God who created you? Are you living your life in your own strength, with your own plan, with your own purpose? And then in the end, will be crushed by Christ himself. That's the application. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 16, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Let him be judged. You either love Christ or you're judged by Christ. Those who will not have Jesus as their deliverer will have Jesus as their destroyer. We not only see the parable taught, the parable examined, and the parable applied. Finally, in verses 45 and 46, we see the parable perceived. Notice what the text says. And when the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. No kidding. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Mark says in Mark chapter 12 and verse 12 that after Jesus applied the parable to them, they left him and they went away. But Luke is more helpful at this point. In his account of this parable, here's how he summarizes the perception of the religious leaders and how they responded to the parable. In Luke chapter 20 verses 19 to 20, listen carefully to how Luke describes the end of the event. And the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. Sounds similar to Matthew at this point, doesn't it? Ah, but now it changes. Listen to the change. So they watched him. And they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. That they might catch him in something he said. So as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor translation they sent spies they sought to trap him so they could fulfill the very thing that he just taught them in this parable by which they condemned themselves these religious leaders knew they were the tenants in the vineyard they knew they were the builders who had rejected the stone and eventually they would kill jesus christ and as a result the kingdom of god Would be taken away from them. And even though they knew Jesus was speaking about them. Their fear of man overpowered them. And they were afraid of the people. So they spied him out. And they sought to trap him. Eventually. These religious leaders in this crowd. They would be presented with an option. From Pilate. Who do you want me to release to you? Barabbas. Barabbas. Or Jesus. And they would all shout. Barabbas. And then Pilate would say to them. What should I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said and shouted. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. It's the parable. The vineyard and the stone. This parable reminds us that authentic Christianity is fruitful Christianity. Christian, does your life bear spiritual fruit this morning? Are you bearing fruit in your life? Good spiritual fruit that is evidence that you have been transformed and changed by Jesus Christian leader does your life does your ministry bear spiritual fruit is it for the glory of God and the kingdom of God or is it for your own kingdom and your own glory and your own vineyard authentic Christianity always bears spiritual fruit application number two I want to speak to what scripture calls the backsliding Christian and that is a Christian who is veered from their relationship with Christ they're no longer walking as closely to Christ as they once were there may be unconfessed sin in your life there may be disobedience in your life you feel distant from God You feel distant from Christ. You are moving backwards in your walk with Him, not forward in your walk with Him. So, backsliding Christian, do you realize this morning your position, your possession, and your privilege in Christ? Do you realize how God has provided for you in His Son? Do you realize, backsliding Christian, that God has given you a promised land, that he has put a wall of sovereignty and providence around you? Do you realize, backsliding Christian, that he has watered you? He has nurtured you. He has cared for you. Do you realize, backsliding Christian, that he has put a watchtower In his vineyard for you in which you can find refuge and strength and help and hope. Do you realize backsliding Christian that he has sent servants and shepherds to care for you and to lead you and to shepherd you and to help you and equip you and help you to produce fruit? Do you realize this morning, backsliding Christian, that he has done all of these things for you? He has given you a well-provisioned vineyard. And yet, you will treat him just the way unbelieving Israel treated him. You will trade the dry and the barren vineyard and the cruel taskmaster of this world For the rich and fertile vineyard of your loving Heavenly Father. Oh, backsliding Christian, would you see the importance and the warning and the danger of this text? Of turning your back on the Lord who bought you and redeemed you. And who has provided richly for you. Would you turn back to Him today? application number three this parable displays the righteous judgment of God God is our judge and his judgment should not be taken lightly because God should never be taken lightly as James Montgomery Boyce says the God who offers salvation now is the God who will judge in righteousness hereafter therefore if you will not have Jesus as your Savior now in the day of his grace You will have him as your judge when you stand before his throne at the final day. That's it, friends. There's only two options. You either stand in his grace now while his grace is available, or you will one day stand in his judgment before his throne. This parable makes that clear. And as the Bible says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into his hands. Application number four. This parable also reminds us not only of the judgment of God, but of the patience of God. When the tenants beat, stoned, and killed the first group of servants, what did the owner do? He sent another group. And when they did the same to the second group, what did the owner do? He sent his own beloved son Now, if that were you and me, we would have wiped them all out. But it wasn't you and me. It was God the Father. And you say, well, why didn't he wipe them out? He had the right to. Yes, he had the right to. He didn't wipe them out because he's patient, he's merciful, he's kind. And friends, we need to remember that we're just like the tenants, we reject his authority. We ignore his blessings. And yet over and over, God extends his mercy, his compassion, his patience, his kindness to us. But I'll remind you this morning that his patience will not last forever. That there is coming a day when his patience will be removed. And so if you hear his voice today, don't harden your heart in rebellion. Don't reject the stone and then be crushed by him. Receive Christ as your Savior. Believe on Him. Take advantage of the patience of God that He is displaying to you today through His Son. Final application. J.C. Ryle, in his book, Expository Thoughts on Matthew, speaks powerfully about this parable. And listen, he applies it to those who attend church on a regular basis and remain unmoved and unchanged. Or well, you come to church, you know the language, you know how to act, you know how to be around, slip in, slip out, unmoved, unchanged. The word never affects you. You remain just the way you are become hardened to it this is what he says to you this morning there are many hearers of the gospel in every congregation who are exactly in the condition of these unhappy men in this parable they know that what they hear Sunday after Sunday is all true they know that they are wrong themselves and that every sermon they hear condemns them. But they have never will nor courage to acknowledge this. They are too proud and too fond of the world to confess their past mistakes and to take up the cross and to follow Christ. And listen, what he says to you, friend. Let all of us be aware of this awful state of mind. The last day will prove that there was more going on in the consciences of hearers than was at all known to preachers. Do you hear that? There was more going on in your conscience and in your soul than what I could even perceive and know and understand. That God in the power of His Spirit and His glory had settled in and was dealing with you And you refused his patience. You refused his gospel. You refused his deliverance. And this is how he ends. Thousands and ten thousands will be found like the chief priest to have been convicted by their own conscience and to have died Unconverted, convicted, confronted with the truth, so close, yet so far away. And at judgment, it'll be a reminder. Oh, listen, it'll be a reminder of every faithful gospel sermon that you ever heard as condemnation in your death. Well, friends, why? Why would you stay unmoved? Why would you stay in a backslidden state? The God of the vineyard has provided everything that you need for life and for godliness. And would you choose an empty, barren vineyard over the riches of His blessing and His grace and His mercy? Oh, dear friend, would you hear this gospel today? Would you see the glory of this great God? And would you cast yourself on Jesus Christ for salvation so that you would not be crushed by him in the end? This parable is a sober reminder that confronts us and warns us of judgment to come. Let's heed this warning. Would you pray with me?